Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Scott Epsley, a world-class physiotherapist and clinician who is the current medical director not far from me at the Philadelphia 76ers NBA team. In this conversation with Scott, he'll be providing us with an absolute masterclass on bone stress injuries management and rehabilitation, and we'll also touch upon the value of MSK ultrasonography in sports medicine. This is one of the most informative clinical episodes that we've done to date, so I'd encourage you to have a pen and paper at the ready, or at least a way to make some notes. But without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Scott Epsley. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for coming on and speaking to me today. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's uh, it's quite ironic because this is probably one of the first episodes uh, from a geographic standpoint where I could have spoke to you in person, but current times have uh, have spoiled that opportunity for me. Yeah, no, we're again really good on uh, the Zoom and uh, social media and uh, connecting uh, remotely. So. Just to kind of kick us off, and just in case any of the listeners haven't had the chance to come across any of your work or hear you speak before, would you be able to kind of outline your professional background and kind of bring them through to the current day with what you're up to? Yeah, so started out as a physiotherapist in Australia and originally um, worked uh, in a couple of clinics, had the opportunity to work with a professional basketball team uh, very early on in my career in the National Basketball League in Australia. And uh, from there, went on to own my own clinic and uh, was working with the National Women's Field Hockey Program, uh, among other things. Had quite a few professional athletes and Olympians that I took care of. And uh, through those connections, uh, a number of athletes were out here in the States and suggested that I consider coming out here. One is an IndyCar driver who uh, still races and uh, the other professional cyclist who's since retired. And so came out and kind of scoped out the landscape and uh, at that point was sort of wondering what was next in my career and, and made made the jump. It wasn't all smooth sailing and I uh, won't get into all the details, but uh, there were certainly some ups and downs early in the transition and uh, eventually... Uh, got hired at Georgetown University as the physical therapist for the athletics department. Uh, worked there for, I think, about eight years. Really enjoyed my time there. It was phenomenal. You've got such a, a great cohort to practice your skills with, you know, 750 student athletes. And and uh, you're there seeing all sorts of injuries across a whole variety of different sports on a daily basis, working very closely with trainers and physicians and, Strength coach is great, great experience, great opportunity. Uh, and uh, then the opportunity came up uh, at the Sixers and ended up uh, at Sixers. I had previously been consulting with uh, the Wizards and some of the other professional teams in Washington, D.C. as well. So uh, I'd done, done that for about three years as well. So this was the next next step. And, and here we are. And what does your kind of what is your current role and kind of what does it involve? I know some people will already be aware, but just in case people aren't. Yeah, so currently I am the medical director, and uh, that's a fairly broad role, I guess. It entails everything from overseeing uh, the, the medical side of what we do, from a medical screening, from a, a physical therapy screening. Um, I also oversee our trainers, um, physical therapists and massage therapists. Uh, I liaise with our coaching staff and our front office staff. 
keeping them up to date and apprised of everything that's going on. Uh, I liaise with our medical staff and, uh, and, and help to arrange any medical interventions, consultations, things like that that we need, along with our training staff who, who help there. Uh, so, and I still have some player care as well. I still have some uh, some individual players that I also take care of. So quite a, a broad role, but uh, one that I really enjoy. Yeah, sounds very multifaceted from what you're saying. Um, just to kind of get into some specifics, I'm, I'm aware f- uh, from speaking to you previously that one of your um, kind of big professional or clinical passions, I guess, is um, ultrasonography and, di- and diagnostic imaging within sport. Where did that kind of interest for you, I guess, begin just to to kind of paint the picture nicely? Yeah, so I think back in Australia, I was a University of Queensland graduate. So really, you're uh, Hyde's, Hodges, Richardson, um, that kind of uh, low back pain cohort back in the 90s and early 2000s. And I was exposed as a student to ultrasound looking at lumbar multifidus and also transversus abdominis. So in the early 2000s, when I got my own clinic, I looked into the the possibility of integrating that into my clinical practice and took some courses and ultimately ended up purchasing a unit and realized that there were some benefits here that uh, I could could get some outcomes that potentially potentially I wasn't able to get without it. When I moved to the States, connected with some other physical therapists, uh, great colleagues of mine who I've had the opportunity to work and teach with now for quite a few years, and they were very interested in the rehabilitative side, but they were also very focused on the diagnostic side. So we cross-pollinated our knowledge bases and uh, ran some courses and ultimately I sat the RMSK certification uh, for musculoskeletal sonography and uh, became very uh, proficient in in diagnostic ultrasound as well. So I have a very big bent towards diagnostic practice. My my first role at the Sixers, uh, my title was uh, uh, director of clinical diagnostics. And so I'm used to kind of correlating ultrasound images with what we see on MRIs or x-rays and using that to help make informed decisions. It's a bit of an open-ended question, so I apologize, but how much value does it really provide you with uh, clinically in sport? Because there'll be people in a more traditional orthopedic setting, perhaps listening, who um, maybe don't have the, don't have access to ultrasound currently or previously, um, but might be wondering kind of how much you can use it in your role. Yeah, and that's a good question, and it's one that I often uh, come across. Uh, I personally think it provides a huge amount of value. You can make clinical decisions much more expediently, especially if it's to refer somebody on for some other form of intervention that you might need, or if it's to help calm them down from you know a, a mental perspective, uh, take away some anxiety, show them that things are actually okay that they're actually okay or if it's to monitor the progress of of healing as you're going through a rehabilitation uh, program now you know that that's a whole other story because we know that sometimes what we see on imaging doesn't correlate to uh, where people are at clinically and, and we're obviously very concerned with function but i think when you have enough experience and uh and knowledge to understand the limitations of the tool that you're using that's where it becomes important as well because you need to know what it's not telling you as well as what it is telling you. 
And I've heard people, or I've read, I guess, better phrased, some uh, quotes saying that the you know ultrasonography equipment may become the kind of uh, therapist stethoscope of the future with technology making them smaller, more portable, and, and cheaper ultimately. Um, you know, I mean, definitely for myself, it's it's something I'm looking to upskill and develop skills in um, as a clinician. But what does the kind of educational landscape look like for clinicians who uh, want to, I guess, safely and sensibly uh, develop skills and, and an ability to use ultrasonography? I really like that you said safely and sensibly, uh, and I, I want to emphasize that, you know, there's there's two aspects to learning ultrasound. One is that you just need to get your hands dirty. You just need to get your, your hands on a machine and, and start using it. You also need to understand it's a high-level skill and you're looking at anatomy and uh, different dimensions and perspectives that you're not used to looking at it in. And so, you know, you begin to realize that everyone's anatomy is different and you also begin to realize that visuospatially, uh, it's it's quite different to anything that you're used to looking at. So this is not something that uh, you can just pick up on a weekend. Um, however, you need to start there. You need to, to get and take that you know introductory course uh, if you're using it diagnostically or rehabilitatively. Uh, understand some basic images and start using it and start learning that way and get your hands on it. Now, for physical therapists. You know the same courses are available as are available to physicians, and uh, the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine has a great website that that you know has a lot of webinars. It also has uh, educational materials. There's a lot of free things on uh, online. There is the ultrasound site uh, that has been started by a fellow in the UK. That's a phenomenal resource as well. So it really is just getting, getting your hands dirty, starting to look at images, getting your hands on some of these resources, uh, taking, taking some courses and working your way up that way. Yeah. Cause the tool itself is obviously safe, but you know, our ability to interpret and, uh, make decisions needs to be, uh, educated and valid at the same time, even though it is a safe tool. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's the key, you know, knowing what you don't know as well uh, is really important here in, in knowing when to say, hey, you know, I'm not really sure what I'm seeing. Um, this is beyond my scope and ability. I'm not really sure. And also understanding the implications of what you're seeing, for instance, imaging tendons. You know, what does it mean when you see pathology? Uh, you know, how do you interpret that and how do you make decisions based on that and convey that to your patient? And does it really matter or does it change anything? So you know, understanding the broader sense of what you're using the tool for uh, is really important. Obviously, you work in the NBA now, but I'm sure you've used ultrasonography with other sports as well, given your background. But where are the kind of, what, what's kind of, I guess, as a bit of a case study, what kind of uh, injury types have you found ultrasonography has kind of previously provided you with the the most value for um, maybe compared to how you could have uh, diagnosed or, or understood an injury without it? Yeah, well, the, the beauty of ultrasound is it's dynamic, right? So that you can do an evaluation through a range of motion or stress a ligament or stress a muscle and, and do a dynamic evaluation. Uh, you can put a, a joint into a position of potential impingement and see an impingement. You can see uh, a capsulitis uh, in a joint. You see increased Doppler signal, power Doppler. Uh, so, you know, these are things that, that are some of the biggest advantages of dynamic assessment. Um, 
you know, it's obviously great for, for using it in muscle injuries. However, you know, there's a couple of limitations. One is that you can't see a muscle injury typically on ultrasound for about 36 hours. Uh, and the second is that people are back playing and functional well before the injury is completely resolved on ultrasound. So, you know, and that's similar to MRI. We know that uh, from muscle injuries. So, again, helpful to monitor the progress, helpful to correlate to your MRI and see what you're seeing. You know, often very helpful when there is no tissue disruption to say, hey, yeah, we can prove this is a grade one uh, or maybe this is a neural hamstring or what have you. So, you know, it may be what you're not seeing that's telling you something. But probably one of the ones that would surprise most people, uh, I'm actually writing a presentation on this as uh, just right before we uh, recorded this podcast, is, is the use in bone injuries. And the ability to track healing in bone injuries with ultrasound has been something that has been very, very helpful. You can see a lot more detail than you can on plain imaging. You can avoid the need for radiation exposure with serial CT scan. Uh, and, and sometimes those forms of, uh, of radiography actually lag behind the healing that you can see using ultrasound. And you can also get a bit of a sense of when that bone is really sort of filling in and, and uh, hardening up, as it were. So as, as you get good bone healing, ultrasound can be a very useful tool. And it's not widely known. Uh, most people don't think of it like that. And is it? can you actually see kind of... Uh... Uh, can you can you kind of interpret on the image of the screen um, into the actual bone itself, or does it? Are you kind of looking at sort of periosteal changes more superficially for the bone? Great question. So yes, uh, yes, and yes. Um, you will see periosteal changes immediately, and there's a thing called reverberation echo uh, or reverberation artifact, where if you if you put a a hard substance like even a metal object when you see this with you know even in needles uh under ultrasound but also with implants uh you get these kind of series of lines that occur below it this sort of reverberation under the cortex of bone you don't so much get line but you get this kind of graying in we're told that underneath bone it should be black because the the sound wave bounces off the bone in actual fact there's kind of this grayish looking uh area and that's that's from the reverberation echo in the areas, even when you get periosteal healing, uh, you will see the periosteal healing, but underneath it, you won't get the reverberation echo. So it will give you a sense of what's happening deeper in the bone by the type of pattern that you see um, in, in the ultrasound. So no, you can't see inside, you can't see the endocortex, but you can get a bit of a sense of, as to what's going on. Which sounds really valuable because if somebody's in a, a more traditional orthopedic setting um, and a patient comes to them with a kind of bone stress injury, um, they may deter them from having it, uh, imaging as to whether they can actually see anything through the, the sort of classic imaging modalities that people would use. But it sounds like uh, from a cost perspective, if a, if a clinic has an ultrasonography machine, then that might actually provide them with some, uh, some diagnostic understanding that they might be missing uh, just from you know, traditional constraints. Yeah, I, I think it can be very helpful for sure. Um, I know by reputation and from speaking to you that, of course, and we're, we're touching upon it now, but bone stress injuries are a professional interest of yours. And so naturally a topic that I want to take the opportunity to ask you about. Um, where did your interest in uh, bone injuries spark from? And or perhaps what caused you to dive deeper into this area clinically? Yeah, so growing up playing basketball in Australia and through high school, you know, we didn't have great facilities. We were playing on outdoor concrete courts 
and I had some of the worst shin splints you can imagine. I remember, you know, taking the the deep heat of the you know those uh, hot icy hot rubs and just rubbing my shins just to be able to play um, many times. And then when I graduated and I started seeing patients, um, I realized that this was a, a really poorly understood area, and there was not a lot in the literature about it. And people were being managed in a variety of different ways that didn't seem to have any kind of rationale behind it. It was uh, a little idiosyncratic and they weren't getting better. And then when I started working with the Australian field hockey program, uh, the girls at the particular age group were kind of very susceptible to developing it. So we actually did a national uh, study and a report to the Australian Sports Commission on this. And, uh, and that was really where my interest got sparked because I could see you know, some people having their careers derailed uh, at, a, at a very crucial time in their careers and potentially unnecessarily so. So um, from my own personal experience, the translating into uh, what I saw in the women's field hockey program is really where I got super interested. And I'd like to try and unpackage your approach to bone stress or bone injuries. And if we can do this through maybe a similar ordering to our clinical involvement with them in terms of style. And by that, I mean, if we can discuss kind of evaluation and diagnostics, management, and then we'll, we'll later to hit rehab and return to play and uh, monitoring. I appreciate we don't have uh, lots of time to go through this thoroughly. Um, this could be a weekend course, I'm sure. But can we kind of try and tease out some of the uh, maybe the key or the interesting components in your practice in uh, in managing them? Um, if we can maybe start with the kind of evaluation and diagnostic piece and, and if there's anything you do there that might be uh, novel or different to what clinicians may have done? Well, I think the first thing is understanding that not all bone is created equal. Uh, so you have to understand your cancellous bone with your trabeculae. You have to understand your periosteal bone. You have to understand your, your cortical bone, your compact bone. So they all kind of remodel slightly differently. Uh, and you know, periosteal bone is very sensitive to traction loading through the, the periosteum and the fascial attachments, for instance. Uh, the cortical bone is very sensitive to your bending loads. Uh, the trabeculate bone is very sensitive to your compression loads, and obviously that's how we, we form the different lines about trabeculae. So that's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is understanding the different remodeling rates. So you, know, you can have... The, the turnover in cancellous bone is dramatically higher than it is in cortical bone. So if you have a bone stress injury in that type of bone, uh, the, the possibility of that bone stress injury progressing very quickly is, is there. Uh, and uh, periosteal bone, you can get uh, inflammatory effects of the surrounding kind of fascial and connective tissue that can create uh, a reaction of the periosteal bone, those little periosteal osteocytes embedded in the, in the periosteum. So I've kind of developed this uh, inside-out, outside-in model. We have a paper at the moment in submission where I talk about this, but basically the idea is that, you know, you can stress the outside of the bone and through various chemical pathways and microvasculature, you can, you can get an upregulation of the inside of the bone. You can have a stress response to the inside of the bone and it can change things on the outside of the bone and effectively it's in flux. So not everyone who has a bone stress injury will go on to get a stress fracture per se. They may have you know, some signal on their MRI and the endocortex, but they may never go on to get you know, a grade four stress fracture. And so it's understanding 
you know, what you're seeing on imaging and, and what's actually happening physiologically and why some people go on to get a stress fracture and why some people don't, how to manage those different bony areas differently. And the, and the third part of this is where the nerves are to tell you that there's an injury, right? So you know, to have uh, nerve fibers in your cancellous bone. So these are areas like the navicular, the cuboid, even sometimes the, the hip, the neck of the femur. You know, in and there's all, obviously cortical bone on the outside, but these areas tend to get upregulated, uh, and you see signal on MRIs on the inside of the bone. But there's not really nerves there to tell you that anything is wrong. Whereas periosteal reactions is quite uh, vascular and quite neural. So anything that occurs on the outside of the bone is going to hurt. It's going to tell you very early on. You're going to know about it. Now the downside of that is you may get pain that's persistent that lingers beyond the actual resolution of uh, the bone injury. So again, really taking a regional approach and understanding the different parts of the bone and how those different parts of the bone respond to different types of loads, uh, how they look from a pain standpoint. Um, you know, you're, the number of times I've seen a cuboid stress fracture that was completely asymptomatic until it wasn't. And we're told that if you have a stress fracture, it'll behave that, you know, it'll be a gradual process of the pain will last longer and longer throughout your run. And then it'll, it'll hurt before you even start running. Then it'll hurt when you walk around. You might get night pain. And these types of stress responses don't behave like that typically at all. They, I've seen them be completely asymptomatic until one day someone takes a step on a run and then boom, they, they're done because they've got the, you know, now a cortical involvement. Now they have pain and now they have a, a fracture. So they had a true kind of outside in sort of mechanism. Uh, so that's probably the biggest difference, I would say, in how I think about bone stress injuries compared to maybe how we're conventionally taught. In, in terms of what you're just saying with parts of the bone, um, in t oh, sorry, or better phrased, in terms of the bony tissue type you were just discussing and the location of it, have you seen uh, sort of clearer changes in how someone's symptoms are reported, depending on what type of bony tissue it is, or is it really quite um, sort of MRI reliant in terms of where the signal is? So symptoms, again, are really often determined on the location so very very vague symptoms for kind of cancellous type areas so even the uh, proximal tibia just under the tibial plateau i've seen stress fractures in runners in that area and you know they've presented as a calf strain with distal pain toward the you know muscular tendinous junction of the achilles uh, i've seen the same thing in the distal femur as well, where they actually almost mimicked a meniscus tear and presented as the lateral knee pain. Uh, they're very poorly localized. They're very hard to diagnose. And the best thing is awareness. It's you know, your sacral stress fracture that, that can present as you know, just vague buttock pain, um, your pubic ramus stress fracture that can present as proximal, ham proximal hamstring pain. Those are the types of things that you really, you know, you've, you have to have an awareness of just knowing how how these bony injuries behave and look at risk factors. Then, you know, things that are periosteal are very easy to localize and, and typically anything cortical or fairly quickly involve some kind of periosteal response. And so, uh, you know, those, those are the ones that are, are much more easy to localize. The athlete tends to be able to put their finger on and say it hurts here. But the other ones, you know, they don't behave that way. Yeah. 
And how, how does having uh, medical doctors or, uh, you know, good access to advanced medical facilities influence your management? Does it, um, I'm guessing, obviously, it gives you information uh, faster in real time. But um, is there any kind of other benefits that you've seen from that? So I think, yeah, the number one thing is how quickly we can arrive at a diagnosis. Um, again, it comes down to interpreting what we're seeing. We know that I think it's 96% of runners, if you MRI and they're asymptomatic, will have some kind of bone stress in their in their foot of professional runners. And so, you know, making sure that you're not doing kind of needle in haystack uh, imaging, as I call it, where you've got this kind of vague problem and you're just doing an image to look for, for something. And so on that level, I sort of say we, we also manage our physicians, right? We help to guide you know, what we think is going on clinically from our observation and examination skills, our knowledge of the athlete, our knowledge of their history, their loading history, all of those things come into play. So having access to, to imaging and advanced uh, imaging and, and doctors is, is great in, in the context of a good clinical history, good examination, good knowledge of your athlete and their history. So all of those things, I guess, get packaged together, I think, to get superior and quicker outcomes. But, you know, just having doctors at your disposal or imaging at your disposal doesn't necessarily improve uh, your outcomes. And beyond kind of maybe what you might expect for some of the healing timeframes, how how do you determine whether you're in a, a say, an osteoclastic or an osteoblastic phase? Because inevitably you'd want to know that to better inform what you're doing in the rehab and critically the timing of what you do and when. Yeah, and that that's a little bit of a tricky one. And I think a lot of it does come down to just a knowledge of the physiology, right? So understanding, you know, that kind of, you know, four-week osteoclastic sort of tunneling phase, understanding that there's a delay in the response between your osteoblastic. Now, now also understanding that these uh, also occur simultaneously. So it's not as if uh, somebody comes in and, and the, uh, the osteoclast comes in and digs out the bone and then four weeks later the osteoblast comes in and lays down the bone. These little basic multicellular units are working together simultaneously um, and kind of digging out and filling in. It's just that there's a predominance of um, osteoclastic activity in the early phase and a predominance of osteoblastic activity in the later phase. And I do think that that's one misconception about bone is kind of, you know, that there's this one phase and then there's this other phase. But it really all, all of these things are going on together. Same thing when you look at different uh, drugs and how they affect bone. You know, it's not as if one thing just stimulates the osteoblast and doesn't do anything to the osteoclast. Almost entirely anything you do to bone will affect the osteoblast and the osteoclast because they're intricately linked through the rank and rankile system. And that's a whole other lecture, but they both work together as this basic multicellular unit. And so having uh, a good understanding of, of that and you know helps you but there i don't have a simple answer for how do you know when you're in this phase other than knowing your time frames knowing that osteoblastic activity lags behind knowing that you generally kind of have this four-week osteoclastic phase four-week kind of more osteoblastic phase and then you enter a remodeling phase but 
also knowing that once you enter that remodeling phase, it's very, very easy to tip back into an osteoclastic phase because these little multicellular units are still hanging around. These osteoclasts are still there. There's immature osteoclasts that have been upregulated. Uh, and, and those things are all set. They're all ready to go. And, and they're just waiting for a stimulus. And those stimuli are generally chemical stimuli. Uh, and when you get that stimulus, you can set yourself backwards as well. So understanding you know, that and what you're trying to achieve at each phase, which I'm sure we'll go into in a moment. Yeah. With that in mind about the remodeling phase, is how long a kind of uh, time frame once you deem the athlete is relatively back to normal, kind of grossly speaking, in terms of training and playing? How long do you have a, I guess, a heightened uh, monitoring uh, system in place for an athlete so they don't kind of go backwards? I mean, I think for us, right, you know, it's really looking at that for the whole season. You know, I'm never comfortable until we've gotten through a really good six to 12 month loading uh, before I really feel completely comfortable. And, and the question always begs, what caused you to get into that place in the first place? You know, um, I am not a purely biomechanics um, advocate. I think that biomechanics can be a factor, it can be a component, and we need to be aware of it. But these are biochemical responses within the bone. Um, pure biomechanics is really the single cause of, of just the, a bone. It could, it could be over a long period of time, but there's, you know, once you have abnormal bone, there's a biochemical process that's set in place as well. And so, you know, I, I'm never really comfortable until we've kind of gotten through that and made sure that we've sorted out both the biomechanics and that the and the and the athlete or patient's body's biochemistry is kind of returned back to normal and calmed down as well. You know, if you've got some kind of indication as to what phase you are in, um, can you kind of talk through uh, broadly how you dose, say, volume, intensity, and frequency as they pertain to uh, sort of stages of the remodeling? Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, generally in, in the early phase, that what I kind of, that phase one, and, and you also, sorry, just step back a, a little bit here. You've got to think about whether, so in the, in the osteogenic phase where the bone is actually healing and you are tipping more into those osteoblastic um, processes. Uh, you can do things to help stimulate those osteoblasts you know, with cycled loading. Um, and this is Burr's research and Roblin's research and, the, and, and those guys. And, and you can really look at how you cycle your loading to help stimulate those osteoblasts. So that is um, kind of low frequency. So 30 cycles of load is is enough to kind of the the curve starts to flatten out after 30 cycles of load but it's enough to stimulate an osteoblastic kind of response within the bone in those healing phases um, and once you hit 90 cycles of load the curve is really flattened off and you basically don't stimulate the, the osteoblasts at all so let's say you have a mechanically insufficient bone uh, you could load it just a little bit with 30 cycles and you can do that three to four hours apart, you know, two to three times a day and have a positive effect on those osteoblasts. Or you could load it for 300 cycles and you actually may be having a negative effect because now you're, you're really loading the bone mechanically in a way that's not actually helping the osteoblast. Uh, so firstly, understanding that and making sure that you, you know, in that 
in that osteoblastic phase, you're using your cycled loading, your small doses and, uh, and repeated small doses. Um, then the second part is the remodeling phase. And what you're really doing there is you're trying to kind of almost desensitize the bone to, to the loading that you're doing so that you're not going to tip back into an osteoclastic phase. And so in the remodeling phase, that's when you can start increasing your volume and your frequency. But to go back to, to answer the question specifically, that early phase um, of remodeling, once you're through that osteoblastic state, I generally go for um, slowly increasing volume first before intensity. And then as I progress through uh, to phase two, I tend to decrease the volume and I tend to increase the intensity uh, and kind of decrease the frequency a little bit. So uh, spacing out some of the increased intensity sessions, but decreasing the volume overall. And then as you progress kind of from there, I tend to bring the frequency a little bit closer together. So, you know, bone doesn't respond to what you do to it for up to five days. So we know there's kind of, you know, in tendon, you get a tendon response up to like three days, you know, post-stimulus. Well, in bone, it can be four or five days. And that's why some of these day-on-day-off programs tend to, to break down because by the time you've hit day five, you've loaded the bone three times. And that's what I used to see clinically with a lot of shin splints patients who, who were given a, a day-on-day-off running program is they day one they feel great day day three they run they feel pretty good i noticed it a little bit and by you know day five they finish their run and they're right back to where they started so again understanding how bone bone responds so slowly bringing your frequency closer together and then finally i bring the intensity and the volume back up together to match what we need for a practice and, and game demands and uh and that's generally how i kind of cycle through those those phases and you know along that uh that process i guess is there any kind of clinical changes or uh data po- data points i guess for a better term that um helped you prompt the progression of rehab in, in terms of time frames i mean you can use any number of monitoring tools um to help you there there's there's obviously plenty out there now uh but realistically you know we're still monitoring uh, for pain, we're still monitoring for bony tenderness. We're monitoring for any changes on, and in, in my case, I use ultrasound to help monitor that as you progress through. Um, but hopefully, you know, if you're progressing through at a good rate, you're not seeing any of those things change or, or increase. But again, you can use accelerometers. You can use all of those sorts of uh, tech uh, equipment to help you. In terms of kind of packaging the uh, return to play process and, and, and benchmarking standards, what, what do you kind of uh, consider or just broadly speaking, um, what's your kind of approach to that? Yeah, so I think you've really got to look at all, all the data points, right? You, you have to, usually what we see is docs get an image and they say that bone's healed and you're good to go. We already talked about why that potentially isn't the case. And so... Um, we want to make sure that we've had a gradual progression through uh, our volume, intensity, and frequency to the point where we're comfortable that we're mimicking game demands, but also the, the frequency of game demands that we're required. And, and uh, we want to make sure that there's no negative effects clinically that are, that are coming in terms of pain, pain to palpation, uh, and any other observable changes 
uh, even you know offloading biomechanically, making sure the athlete is continuing to look like they're loading normally, uh, and then using any tech that you're using to to monitor that as well. Uh, and so all of those pieces together help you to make an informed return to play decision. Uh, and, and notwithstanding coaches uh, who are very good observers of athletes, they've been watching, in our case, basketball players, but you know, it could be any coach, uh, and they intuitively have a really good sense of when uh, somebody is performing kind of back toward their normal. Uh, and so it's, a, it's really a collaborative decision. Yeah. And is this an area that you think you'll continue to uh, venture into from a research standpoint professionally? Uh, yeah, if you had to give me a crystal ball and ask me to predict, uh, that's definitely something that uh, I would like to to look into in the future. I know uh, some of my, my mentors have definitely gently nudged me that way for sure. I mean, it, it sounds from speaking to you, I know you've got a bit of an interest in tendons as well. It sounds like you've got a bit of a knack for uh, picking some of the more awkward injuries to tackle. I don't know about that. Maybe uh, I have a, a real interest in basic science. I think I love biology. I've always loved biology. Uh, I always say, you know, I was going to be a doctor when I grow up. I just haven't grown up. But, uh, you know, uh, I really love the, the basic science and the application and, and translation. I, I guess one of the biggest criticisms is, is people feel that sometimes you can get too bogged down in the basic science and miss the clinical, which could be true. But, um what I really believe is that you know 80% of things get better. The body is an amazing healer, and most times they get better in spite of us, not because of us. Some, you know, I think that you know understanding you know our role is really important, but also understanding that when, you know we don't overrate ourselves too. The body does an incredible healing job, irrespective of of what we do. But it's the 20% of things that don't go right. And if you don't understand the biology and you don't understand what's going on, then you don't know how to treat it. And that's when you start getting into these kind of desperation treatments, right, where you're injecting this, you're injecting that, you're, you're doing multiple imaging modalities, you're considering surgery. And, and it's really, you know, a kitchen sink approach to treating once you get to that. Um, whereas if you have a good background in the biology, then you can help to avoid a kitchen sink approach because the body will kind of tell you what's going on and you just need to listen. And then when you, when you get you know, the answer, you can move forward in a thoughtful, uh, progressive way. And you know, you're not always right, but you can at least have a hypothesis and move forward in a thoughtful way. It's interesting, under a very different context, uh, a recent guest on the show, Gordon Bosworth, said the exact same thing about the body will uh, tell you where to go, providing your yeah your understanding and your assessment approach is um, is kind of logical and, and uh, has the detail behind it that you need. Um, Scott, where's the best place for the listeners to uh, follow you or kind of keep up to date with um, anything you're doing research-wise now, but also just in the future? I generally Twitter. Uh, I don't post a lot on Twitter. I keep it to professional posting and, and things related to, to that. And that's where I, I like to follow other people's research. And so we have a couple of papers in submission right now that hopefully we can get over the line. Uh, some on imaging uh, and some on uh, bone, as, as I talked about. And uh, if we can get those, I'll certainly 
post those on Twitter, but that's that's usually where uh, I post things. Well, I thank you uh, very much, genuinely, for for coming on and sharing just so much detail and uh, and some wisdom around this topic. And um, yeah, I wish you, the medical team at the Sixers, and, and and the Sixers themselves, the best of luck in the in the rest of the year going forward. Once you get started back up. Thanks, Andy. It was uh, great to be here and fun to talk about this stuff. Pleasure. Thank you. Big thanks to Scott for coming on today's show and sharing some truly outstanding clinical knowledge. It was a pleasure to talk to him both on and off air, and I have no doubts that a lot of clinicians listening will have learned a lot from that one, as I did too. Make sure you subscribe to the show and keep an eye out for new releases. Next week, I'll be speaking to Dr. Duncan French, the Vice President of Performance at the UFC, so one to not miss. For now, though, thanks for listening to the Informed Performance Podcast.